What do Snoop Dogg, Charles Koch, and George Soros have in common? I'll give you a hint. It's green, and it isn't money. They've all come around to the legalization of cannabis. Well, I've spent my whole adult life working towards legalization, so I want to see it happen as much as anybody. But we only get one chance to get this right, and all of the future generations are depending on us. If you think about alcohol prohibition ending in the last century, um, you can see how the decisions that were made had massive snowballing effects on how the industry came to be. And so if we're careful, then legalization will look the way we want it to look. And if it doesn't, we'll just have another big tobacco or another big tech and we'll just be handing over this multi-billion dollar industry to the same corporate players that already handle everything else. And I'm not willing to do that. Today, 40% of Americans live in a state with legalized cannabis, which means there are a lot of business opportunities. And so the uh, friends of Adam Smith are stepping in. This is capitalism. I understand capitalism. At some point, this whole industry is going to be taken over by big banks, big tobacco, big pharmaceutical, big people in the marijuana business. My perspective is I can see that happening, but I need them to be able to buy that from somebody who's owned it for five to 10 years first, as opposed to letting them get it immediately. And these folks never get an opportunity to create a potential for generational wealth. The business of legal cannabis is happening. And how legalization unfolds will determine the kind of industry that emerges. The future of weed. What's that future going to look like? As those companies get bigger, you know, they're going to have more money, not only for advertising, but also for lobbying. And so it'll be much easier for them to kind of exert political power. That is Big Weed. And that's what we're looking at today. So, who is Big Weed? And... Is there anything we can enjoy without it being ethically murky? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This, where we talk about power through the stories of people who have it. Today, we're looking at big weed, which you might be wondering, is that even a thing? Well, until recently, it wasn't. Colorado and Washington legalized recreational in 2012, and in the past 10 years, more than a dozen states from California to Michigan to Massachusetts have gone green. And the money is moving. Major investment banks are following the trajectory of legalization. In 2019, an analyst at one of those banks, Cowan, estimated that by 2030, cannabis sales could hit $80 billion. For context, according to the United States Poultry and Egg Association, the value of all egg production in 2019 was $7.7 billion. That's not quite apples to apples or eggs to weed or... No, it is eggs to weed. But you get the point. There's a lot of money on the table. And you might be thinking, that's great. Weed is awesome. It should be legal and available everywhere. And I'm not going to tell you my opinion, but I bet you can guess. The thing is, legalization is also opening the door to those friends of Adam Smith I mentioned earlier. In the United States, the debate largely focuses on this false dichotomy. Either we need to keep cannabis prohibited 
um, you know, maybe reduce some of the penalties, or we need to allow kind of for-profit companies to come in and produce and sell cannabis to adults. That's Bo Kilmer, who's been working on this stuff for almost 25 years, which means he's watched the legal status of weed change a lot. Anyway, he's currently director of the RAND Drug Policy Research Center. Now, it turns out there are a lot of other options uh, that jurisdictions could consider. For example, um, you could allow, you know, you could just allow home production or you could allow some of the cannabis buyers clubs or um, social clubs as uh, as have been um, implemented in parts of Europe. But some people kind of look at those options and say, well, that's fine, but it's not necessarily going to bring in revenue. But even if you want to bring in revenue, you don't necessarily have to give the market to, uh, you know, for profit companies. For example, you could have a government monopoly or a state store model. Uh, which, uh, you know, a while ago, a number of states had that for, uh, for alcohol, for, especially for liquor, and st- some still do. Um, you could even potentially, you know, even if you're going to allow for-profit companies to get involved, you can still require that they be, you know, for-benefit corporations, you know, for example, or be, you know, re- be registered as B corporations, which focus on the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profits. So you could kind of require that they be socially responsible. Um, However, that really hasn't been part of the discussion in the United States. No surprises there. But how we approach the legal status of drugs like cannabis isn't static. And the movement around legalization has increasingly been linked to equity. Equity isn't traditionally compatible with for-profit corporate activity. Tying the concept of legalization to social justice probably became clearest, um, or became like the most clearly defined need after 2010, um, when Michelle Alexander released her book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. Actually, let me make sure I got that subtitle right. Yes. That's Emily Dufton. Hello, my name is Emily Dufton, and I'm the author of the book Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. But back to The New Jim Crow. What does mass incarceration have to do with legalization? It's amazing that like this very academic book is like this runaway bestseller social change uh, manifesto. I mean, I think any professor who <laughs> hopes that their book causes such a stir, but like so few of them do. And Michelle Alexander, by pointing out um, in clear, factual, numerical terms, the negative effects of prosecuting nonviolent crimes on the black community, it was just like, wow, and there's just no denying it. The book is... Uh, the book really did its homework and it's just too, you can't disprove it. There it is, right? There's real uh, pain and harm that have come to communities because of the prosecution of nonviolent crimes, which were primarily made up of drug fel- of, 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 of drug infractions, right? So Alexander points this out and it, she never says specifically in the book uh, that legalization is the answer. She does mention that maybe decriminalization would be useful, even from states that just like are, you know, their budgets are kind of tight and they can't give more money to the police. So they're like, okay, just, we'll just, you know, kind of decriminalize this. They don't have to go over pot offenders anymore. And then you have more time and money for other things. (laughs) She she talked about decrim basically as like a cost saving measure for the police, as opposed to uh, kind of a social justice measure. But I think other activists saw what Alexander said and said, well, there's a real concrete thing we can do to bring an entire section of this community that is within the realm of like the law law enforcement system of America and just no longer make them 
part of that. Like, let's just take these people out of the potential criminal pool. Let's legalize it. And that's a real thing you could do to enact real change as far as social justice was concerned, to make an entire population unarrestable. <laughs> like, you're no longer arrestable for this substance. You know, that, that's a huge change. And for the most part, it's kind of worked. Big emphasis on kinda. The war on drugs is not over, and people across the country are still being arrested for possession, even in states where recreational use has been legalized. Critically, racial disparities in who is being arrested have also persisted. According to a 2020 report from the American Civil Liberties Union, quote, Although the total number of people arrested for marijuana possession and rates of arrest have decreased in all legalized states and most decriminalized states for both black and white people, the racial disparities in arrest rates in these states remain. Specifically, in every state that has legalized or decriminalized marijuana possession, black people are still more likely to be arrested for possession than white people. End quote. So, sure. Weed is increasingly available for medicine and just having fun, and yes, arrests are decreasing. But understand that while some of us are able to go to dispensaries and buy fancy legal bud, some of us are also getting arrested for using a substance that is now legal in many states. And this is where we're at as cannabis goes mainstream. This drug is undergoing a significant rebranding as it becomes more widely available. And that's not like a surprise, you know, that's that's kind of how marketing and, and capitalism work. And I understand that. But I'm, I guess I am a little bummed that, you know, I, when I got into researching this, like, you know, I got into drug history, like, a long time ago, I've been interested in the subject for a long time. And I got into it before this mass legalization effort was taking place. And the image of pot that I still like the most that I still find very uh, romantic, um, and kind of exciting is the is the image from the 60s uh, is very much so that before the fall of the hippies before it became you know before like the as Hunter S. Thompson said like the wave you know crested and rolled back on itself like there's this moment where this this substance was seen as a huge middle finger to you know straight American society it's just like no we're going to be you know people who express love and joy and we care about each other and we care about this planet and like we're done with this we're done with this negative trip we're we're gonna try to do it right and like think, i think that's like the coolest thing right and if that's tied to the term marijuana then i think marijuana is cool right i think it's a great thing um cannabis to me feels very slick it feels very like you go it's like going to the apple store you know <laughs> like it loses the dirty grunginess that has characterized the the scrappy individuals that up to the point where you know over a third of America is living in legalized states made up the sort of periphery of pot smokers. You know, it's like there was a, it was a crunchy, grungy uh, crew of misfits. And I think that was fun. And now pot is going mainstream and it's not pot anymore. It's cannabis and it's fancy. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I miss the sixties. I do miss the sixties. I don't miss decades of arrests and the harm that the war on drugs caused, but I do miss that moment when uh, the 60s weren't so uh, tainted with cynicism and, and like sort of a comical like, oh, the 60s, what a joke. And it's like, no, for a minute there, it was kind of cool. <laughs> what was once radical potential is now market potential. And when you have market potential, you have people who want to, you know, capitalize on that. It's happening on an international level. And I think the United States really does have to think about it in that way. 
because um, if we don't, like, we're going to miss the boat. I also think legalization has a lot of really excellent social benefits when enacted correctly and with the proper restraints put on the market. Uh, I also think it could have a lot of benefits for um, jobs. I think we could have a thriving agricultural market. I think there could be a thriving uh, you know, market for consumable goods. It would be great if we focused on like sustainable small family farms to allow this, uh, this entire industry to flourish. It would be great if we did it in a way where the people who were most harmed by the war on drugs could suddenly have a really awesome living participating in this economy. It would be great if it kept some of those, those deep 60s hippie roots and you know use this substance to make the world a better place as opposed to just another corporate monopoly enriching the few at the expense of the many that would be my dream um but i do think the potential is there and i do think honestly the train the train's pulling out of the station and, and the u.s you know has to recognize that it's probably time to to get on <laughs> but remember this is all happening on a state-by-state -state basis, and so any decisions about what to do if the revenue states make from taxing pot are decisions made in a world in which federal legalization hasn't occurred. Here's Bo Kilmer. With New York, now roughly 40% of the U.S. population now lives in states that have passed laws uh, to allow profit-maximizing firms to produce and sell cannabis to adults for non-medical purposes. All of this is happening, you know, in a world where cannabis is prohibited under federal law. If the federal government changes its approach and it's now legal to uh, move cannabis across state lines, uh, you could see the industry concentrate very quickly. You know, with my colleagues at RAND, uh, we've estimated that you could produce all the cannabis that's consumed in the United States on a few dozen uh, you know, typical industrial farms. That's it. So you can imagine that, you know, with federal uh, legalization that could, you know, the industry could concentrate and that would affect obviously jobs and revenues in a number of other states. Um, you know, there are also questions about, you know, will federal legalization allow for imports? You know, it might be a heck of a lot cheaper to grow the cannabis outside of the United States, extract out the THC, CBD, and, you know, other components of the plant and then ship it to the U.S which obviously would have an important impact on producers here. And another really big question um, is, you know, if, if there's a change in federal policy, will companies like Amazon be allowed to deliver? And I mean, we've already seen what Amazon has done to Main Street. Um, if, if Amazon could get involved and, uh, and a lot of people make their purchases that way, you know, that could have a real, uh, a real significant impact on a lot of your smaller entrepreneurs, your mom and pop shops. And this would also, you know, could also have important implications for, uh, uh, for social equity. There's this Italian phrase, qui bono, which means who benefits. It's meant to be asked when a crime is committed to help identify the culprit. But it's also interesting to apply to politics. So as cannabis is legalized in more and more places, who benefits? In an ideal world, it would be the communities impacted by the war on drugs, folks who use cannabis for medical purposes, and hey, people who just like to smoke weed without being bothered by law enforcement. But this isn't an ideal world. It's America. And as laws are formulated, it's super important to ask, who benefits? And in this case, who's going to get a hold of what may be an $80 billion market by 2030? We'll try and find out after this. 
Is there someone or something you want to hear us do an episode about? Hit me up on social media at SNMRRW or send me an email, sm at nowthismedia.com. But let's not get ahead of ourselves and focus on this episode. Not sure why my attention drifts so much. Anyway, back to Big Weed. Here's Bo Kilmer. There's a, you know, there's a tremendous amount of variation in how cannabis is being regulated in legalization states. You know, in, in some places, uh, the existing liquor control board is now tasked with uh, regulating cannabis. In other places, it's the Department of Revenue. Um, and, you know, in other states, it's, you know, other agencies. So there's a lot of variation there. I think the thing to keep in mind, and, and, and you do see, you know, folks who may have been regulators early on now going to the private market. Um, I mean, we, we see that with a lot of industries. <laughs> That's not just specific to cannabis. Um, but I would recommend for these regulatory bodies uh, to work as hard as possible, especially early on, to keep out industry influence. And, you know, um, that said, I mean, obviously, you know, obviously they're going to need to talk to industry and, you know, as they are stakeholders, but keeping them out of the decision-making process is going to be really important. But, of course, where Big Weed wants to be is right in the middle of the decision-making process. Being lobbied is interesting. I always thought that it was about money or favors or, like, getting some, you know, special box to see sports or something. But what I really found was that when I was getting lobbied, the things that really sophisticated lobbyists were good at was making you feel seen and understood and almost like having a friend because being in a high bureaucratic position is very lonely. And so when you feel like someone is understanding what you're doing and supporting you and offering help, uh, I can see why people listen so much to lobbyists. That's Shaleen Title. My name is Shaleen Title. I am currently a distinguished cannabis policy practitioner in residence at the Ohio State University Law School's Drug Enforcement and Policy Center. Before that, I was a commissioner with the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission from 2017 to 2020, where I led the implementation of the legalization of marijuana. Our agency was a brand new agency that was charged with everything from licensing new businesses to doing public awareness campaigns about marijuana, basically everything having to do with the newly legal substance of cannabis. I couldn't resist, and it's so rare to find somebody who you can actually ask. What makes a good lobbyist? When you have so many people that want different things from you, more than you could ever possibly do. And especially in the beginning where there's intense pressure and public scrutiny and people are like, it's been a month, why can't I buy cannabis in the store right now? What's taking so long? Um, the pressure really gets to you. And I think that lobbyists are very good at offering help, offering support, offering often um, laws from other states that you could just copy and paste. It's going to make your job a lot easier. And so I think that has a lot to do with why so many marijuana uh, policies look similar to the first ones that were passed in 2016. And as Big Weed gets bigger, it's going to get more powerful. So who is Big Weed? 
Or put another way. When does the money start to move into this industry? Well, we saw a few waves. I think in the beginning, even though legal cannabis was profitable, as soon as medical marijuana laws started passing, the early businesses were largely, I would say, rebel and pioneer types who were okay with breaking federal law openly. And then after 2012, when Colorado and Washington passed, I think there was a sense of understanding that there were going to be more states that were going to legalize cannabis and that those companies that were already in medical marijuana would likely be able to expand to adult use marijuana, which is a lot more people, a lot more profits. So you saw another wave at that time. Then I think you saw a huge amount of interest and investment in 2018 when we saw many more states legalizing, but just as importantly, we saw Canada become the second country after Uruguay to legalize cannabis nationally. And so that's when you started hearing about huge multinational corporations starting to look at the industry and many making big investments. And now I think we're in a third wave where federal legalization seems to be imminent. And so we're seeing gigantic uh, lobbying groups coming together, trying to influence federal legalization and make sure that their members can profit from it. Okay, so Bo Kilmer touched on this earlier, but how exactly would federal legalization change the game? There's a paper that just came out by a professor at Vanderbilt University Law School called Interstate Commerce in Cannabis. And it suggests, and I agree, that once the states are no longer able to prevent the cannabis companies locally from uh, transferring, shipping, selling cannabis over state lines, that will immediately have a concentrated uh, industry with just a handful of companies that are likely to dominate the cannabis market. And I do think that is the way the market is set up right now. The only reason you have um, smaller companies or the only reason you don't have huge behemoths yet is because each market is limited to its own state. So if you produce, if you want to sell cannabis in Massachusetts, it has to be produced in Massachusetts. But once that changes, I think we'll see consolidation very quickly. And as a regulator, as someone who is concerned with public health and public safety, I'm concerned about that consolidation, not just in terms of how big the companies can get, but in terms of the incentives for a company. So if you have a company right now that is more concerned with getting acquired than with developing a good product or treating its workers well or its customers well, then you end up with a company that is not doing much for society. And I think you see that a lot if you look at, say, the tech industry and some of these companies with bro culture where the only concern is driving up your value and getting acquired that's bad for consumers, and it's particularly bad when you're dealing with a product that could potentially affect public health. Unsurprisingly, Big Tobacco is starting to get into the weed game. This is only one example, but in 2020, Altria, which owns Philip Morris, that's Marlboro Parliament, invested $1.8 billion 
into Kronos Group, a, quote, innovative global cannabinoid company, end quote. Its portfolio of products includes things with names like Peace Naturals, Happy Dance, and Spinach. Here's Shaleen Title. The one that I am extremely concerned about personally is Big Tobacco. Um, we just saw a new lobbying coalition form that is backed by uh, tobacco companies, including Altria, which is the owner of Marlboro Brands. And the reason that's very concerning for someone like me that has been working on marijuana legalization for so long is that we know who tobacco companies are. We know what they've done. Um, they are convicted racketeers who misled the public knowingly about the harms of their products. And they changed the chemical makeup of cigarettes to be more addictive. Things like adding ammonia to cigarettes so that it hits your brain faster, so that you get addicted faster. Things to make people get addicted younger, to use more products. We really haven't seen those tactics much in the cannabis industry. And so there's a major concern that if you have companies like tobacco companies getting into the cannabis industry, we'll start seeing a lot of predatory practices and potentially dangerous products that we haven't seen yet. This has implications for a specific set of potential users. Here's Bo Kilmer. There are a number of ways that you could potentially um, uh, legalize cannabis and not necessarily allow for-profit companies to get involved. And one of the reasons uh, why this is important to consider is what's known as the 80-20 rule, uh, which, is also been which is also known as the, uh, the Pareto Principle, which suggests that about 80% of the consequences are produced by 20% of the causes. Now, this is named after Pareto, who was an Italian economist, who found that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the population. Now, this relationship has been observed in many different fields, and it seems to be true for alcohol, where roughly 80% of alcohol expenditures come from about 20% of the people who drink. Now, I led a team of researchers uh, who was doing some work for the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy you know, a few years back. We were focused on drug markets, and we actually found a similar uh, relationship with cannabis. It was 20% of the people who use cannabis, so these are your daily and near-daily users, that accounted for about 80% of the expenditures. So the industry, you realize, and we see this with alcohol as well, you know, the industry is going to make most of its money from these high-frequency users, so that's the group they're going to try to expand. So if you do allow for-profit companies to get involved, realize that that's what they're going to ultimately try to do. So you have a big new market and an enormous opportunity to make a lot of money. Federal legalization seems probable, and that means consolidation may be on the horizon. So who is going to make it happen for big weed? It's clear that uh, this market is going to expand. Uh, and as it does, lawmakers in Washington uh, have to look up and realize that the federal government is way out of step. Uh, it's time for the federal government to get out of the way. And so uh, I'm hopeful uh, that Congress uh, will soon act. That's former Speaker of the House John Boehner on CNBC in 2019. Yes, that John Boehner. In 2011, a constituent reached out to then-Speaker Boehner imploring him to consider legalization. Boehner responded, quote, As you know, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, 
has classified marijuana, together with heroin, LSD, methamphetamines, hashish, which is weed, by the way, John, and a number of other drugs as Schedule 1 drugs. According to the FDA, these drugs carry a high potential for dangerous abuse. To date, no clinical study of marijuana has progressed to the level required for approval by the FDA. Even more, the Department of Justice has reiterated its intent to enforce the Controlled Substances Act in states who have legalized marijuana for medicinal purposes. I am unalterably opposed to the legalization of marijuana or any other FDA Schedule I drug. End quote. Unalterably opposed. So, what happened? In 2018, Boehner joined the board of Acreage Holdings. Acreage brands include Prime, the Live Resin Project, and The Botanist, which is, quote, an immersive hub for people who aspire to live a balanced and socially responsible lifestyle, end quote. Acreage Holdings is big weed. In 2019, Boehner joined the National Cannabis Roundtable, a major industry lobbying and trade organization. Also at the table, Kathleen Sibelius, who Forbes once listed as the 13th most powerful woman in the world. Sibelius, a Democrat, was governor of Kansas and served as Secretary of Health and Human Services during the Obama administration. Like Acreage Holdings, the National Cannabis Roundtable is also big weed. So yes, decades of activism have changed things. But has this just opened the door to another powerful for-profit industry? Back to that Italian phrase from earlier, qui bono? Who benefits? You really can't paint legalization movement with a broad brush anymore because you still have the people who believe in marijuana legalization as freedom and as something that can help heal racial injustices and the war on drugs in the past. But then you also have these people who, like John Boehner, actually spent the majority of their career being part of the war on drugs. And now that they're able to profit from it, they're also calling for the legalization of marijuana. So we have to be able to see all of those different groups and understand what a particular policy um, might be, what the ramifications of a particular policy might be in terms of who they benefit. Legalization continues state by state. New Mexico did it a few weeks after New York, and on July 1st, 2021, cannabis will be legal in Virginia. But like Shaleen Title said, it's important to consider the ramifications of legalization, and depending on how it's designed, who it might benefit. In fact, it's this qui bono question that stalled legalization in New York. When we're back, we're going to hear from the legislator who made equitable legalization happen in New York. Majority Leader of the New York State Assembly, Crystal D. Peoples-Stokes, after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, recorded from my apartment in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where I can now legally go outside and smoke a joint on the sidewalk. In April 2021, New York State legalized cannabis, and the legalization seems pretty promising. That public smoking thing is part of it. That's a provision that even California and Washington don't have. There's automatic expungement, meaning criminal records go away. Home grow is permitted. A bunch of the tax revenue collected is being split between education, community reinvestment, and drug treatment. 
A social and economic equity program was designed to ensure that 50% of licenses for cannabis businesses will go to equity applicants, minority and women-owned businesses, service-disabled veterans, distressed farmers, and people impacted by the war on drugs. And that's not all. These aren't goodies and giveaways to benefit big weed, although with a big market like New York opening up, big weed will definitely benefit. But there's one woman in particular we have to thank for many of these equity provisions. Majority Leader of the New York State Assembly, Crystal D. Peoples-Stokes. New York's legislation was intentional about equity prior to being intentional about gaining access to revenue. So when you put your goal for equity first and foremost, then you structure the legislation in the statute around that as opposed to just legalizing adult-use cannabis. We legalized adult-use cannabis, but first we required the equity pieces to support the people who suffered from decades of mass incarceration and disinvestment in their communities. As you can probably hear, Majority Leader People Stokes is on the road. Anyway, remember how Emily Dufton talked about Michelle Alexander and mass incarceration earlier? I wanted to hear about that in real life, from an actual politician who put together legislation to address it. So I asked Majority Leader People Stokes, why does equity matter when you're legalizing recreational cannabis? Well, if you um, think about the times for when this product was made illegal and the legislation that happened afterwards, the three strikes you're out and all those sorts of things, you will see that there was a I believe, intentional incarceration of black people and black and brown people. And so over multiple decades, the lives of people were destroyed because they were um, arrested and convicted for low levels of marijuana. Uh, In the process of of doing that, we literally destroyed families. Uh, Children's lives are destroyed. Everybody's lives is destroyed. Communities uh, that these folks live in, Uh, is constantly in disrepair, um, and the lives of their children are in disrepair. So for me, if you're getting ready to, as a government, earn revenue to take care of the people's business, or you're getting ready to establish a brand new above-ground industry that will allow a lot of people to gain access to uh, tremendous amounts of dollars, then at minimum, you have to start with taking care of the people who suffered the cost of the, the multiple years of when this was an illegal product and it was used to disenfranchise and incarcerate black and brown people. The 50% of licenses for marijuana businesses going to equity applicants that we talked about earlier, that's part of this. The 50% is for people who live or have been impacted by mass incarceration, live in those communities. Um, minority or women-owned business, disabled veterans, and distressed farmers. Those are the equity criteria that we're looking for for that goal of 50%. Uh, you, You can get a license if you've had a previous felony conviction. For instance, being convicted of a nickel bag of marijuana is a felt was a felony so if you had that previous conviction it won't keep you from getting access to a license stuff like this is policy that could be change making and sometimes it is about the money 
Majority Leader People Stokes has been working on this legislation for a while, and even blocked legalization legislation in 2019 when equity wasn't at the heart of the bill. I have carried this legislation for seven, eight years. And literally, because New York State is the largest underground market of, of marijuana, almost every person who is in business somewhere in the country, very wealthy people, have been in my office to talk to me about this legislation. So what that tells me is that, one, I know it's the largest market. Two, I know there's going to be a lot of money made. And three, I know that there are people who are prepared to make it now that are already in the business, that are not black or not brown and have never suffered the cost of mass incarceration. And so the construct has to be that at some point, these people are going to have access to these businesses. They are because this is capitalism. I understand capitalism. At some point, this whole industry is going to be taken over by big banks, big tobacco, big pharmaceutical, big people in the marijuana business. My perspective is I can see that happening, but I need them to be able to buy that from somebody who's owned it for five to ten years first, as opposed to letting them get it immediately. And these folks never get an opportunity to create a potential for generational wealth. And that's not even mentioning the expungements, wiping away people's cannabis-related convictions, and the tax revenue, a big chunk of which is going to education, community reinvestment, and drug treatment. It'll be a big change for people whose lives have been uh, negatively impacted as a result of mass incarceration. And it'll be a big change into the economies of communities across the state of New York. Um, It will allow... Um, municipal governments, not county governments, to make the call of, as to whether or not there is a dispensary located in their community. Um, counties or municipal governments will not have the capacity to say that a farmer can't grow. They can only have the capacity to say that there can't be a dispensary located in my town, village, or city. Uh, the resources will be shared in a fair and equitable manner. And You know, hopefully, you know, some states will add value, some communities, rather, will add the same value that the state is going to add with its 40 percent. They will add value in those communities where people have suffered. Now we have better communities, more desirable communities. Now you have less, um, hopefully, predatory businesses located in these neighborhoods. Now you have more people and more children doing better in school and living healthy, quality lives. So what needs to happen to keep legalization equitable and ensure that the cannabis industry doesn't turn into the big weed of our nightmares? Here's Shaleen Title. I think that any state that legalizes cannabis needs to do at a minimum what states like Massachusetts, Illinois, and California have done, which is to make sure that small businesses and businesses owned by people of color or people with drug convictions are specifically protected and given part of the industry. Because otherwise, if you kind of leave it laissez-faire, it's always the big companies that are going to immediately snatch up the opportunities and get the first mover advantage. 
It's also really important that we're using tax revenue to repair the harm that was done over the last 50 years with the war on drugs. And I think at this point, legalization is so popular and it seems so inevitable that we no longer have to just take what we can get as the people. It's the people who have passed all of these laws. And so now you can walk away from the table if the law doesn't seem fair and it seems designed to support corporate profits instead of the people. There is one caveat. I'm going to let Shalene Title explain. I think it's really important to pay attention to the fact that not all small businesses are the same and not all businesses owned by people of color are small businesses. And the reason that's important is because when we think about policies that incentivize different categories of businesses, you don't want to accidentally create a benefit that, say, a very rich person of color who's never been affected by the drug war would be able to take advantage of. And you don't want to create something that considers every small business to have been affected by the war on drugs. So it's just very important to have a nuanced approach when you think about the different types of businesses and how and why you want to incentivize them. Back to Bo Kilmer. Nobody knows how legalization is ultimately going to play out with respect to public health, public safety, and social equity. And so it seems to me that if you're going to be cautious about this, you may want to give yourself, uh, you know, the ability to make, you know, significant mid-course corrections. And so that's why when you think about legalization, you know, you don't necessarily have to jump from prohibition all the way to for-profit, uh, you know, kind of commercialization. There are other middle ground options that you could try for a while and see how it goes. And you could always make changes over time. However, once you start with a for-profit commercial model, uh, and say you know, say a jurisdiction decides five to ten years later that they want to try something else, well, it's a lot harder to put that genie back in the bottle once um, you know w- once the companies get a foothold, you know, you know, get a, get a, you know, get a significant share of the market, and they've got their lobbyists. So, so I so I I think flexibility is important. And I think the commercial model limits the amount of flexibility uh, that jurisdictions have to make changes. What happens in the next few years could determine which way things go forever. We're at such a tipping point right now because um, the decisions that we make as we legalize cannabis at the state level and possibly at the federal level are going to impact generations to come. It's so much easier to make a decision for the first time than it is to change that decision going forward. I want to go back to Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes. Well, I would just say when it's right, don't move. People will move to you. And if they don't move to you, then maybe it wasn't right. But I'm telling you, if you take a principled position and you don't waffle from it, it will move your direction. It's just the way of the universe because it's right. Most Americans, from Snoop Dogg to John Boehner to George Soros to Charles Koch, support the legalization of cannabis. If done right, legalization at the state level can do a lot of good for a lot of people. But just like everything else in America, 
These efforts, whether it's a ballot initiative or a piece of legislation, are supported and partially controlled by big for-profit interests. So as we watch the end of cannabis prohibition, pay attention to the details and ask yourself, qui bono? Who benefits? Or you may be left saying another Italian phrase, mamma mia. Next time, something slightly more important than weed, the very future of the Earth itself. The climate crisis we were warned about by Al Gore 15 years ago is happening. And unless the pandemic goes on forever, carbon emissions are probably going to start rising again. So besides everyone pitching in and getting us to net zero, is there anything we can do about it? And how dangerous could doing something about it be? Next week on Who Is? Geoengineering. A sincere thank you to our guests. Emily Dufton, a writer and historian. Her first book is Grassroots, The Rise and Fall of Marijuana in America. Bo Kilmer, director of the RAND Drug Policy Research Center and Macaulay Chair in Drug Policy Innovation. Majority Leader Crystal People Stokes, who represents District 141, that's downtown Buffalo, in the New York State Assembly. And Shalene Title, Distinguished Cannabis Policy Practitioner in Residence at the Drug Enforcement and Policy Center of the Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. From 2017 to 2020, she was appointed by the Massachusetts Governor, Attorney General, and Treasurer to serve as one of the inaugural commissioners of the state's Cannabis Control Commission. Who Is is a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. This episode was edited and mixed by Will Stanton. Production support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hadakuder. And now this, Tina Exaros is our chief content officer, and Ethan Stephanopoulos is our president. Want to escape? On Thrillist Explorers, you'll travel around the world from the comfort of your own headphones. Join longtime Thrillist writer and host Will Fulton as he digs deep into wanderlust-inducing travel stories and interviews people who are running out of pages in their passports. From professional skater Tony Hawk detailing his RV trip across the states to legendary journalist Dan Rather giving his picks for the best food in Austin, Texas. Thrillist breaks down stories you'll want to tell your friends about, delivers actionable travel advice, and creates an inclusive experience that will inspire you to go around the globe. Or at the very least, dream about it. <laughs>